Lord, we bless your name. We exalt you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, we thank you for your precious Holy Spirit who is here today and working among us. We thank you for utterance and direction in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Well, set with me, the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Glad you got that right. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you this morning about the feasts of Israel. There were seven different feasts that God established with his people. Four of them were in the spring of the year and three of them in the fall of the year. And Jesus fulfilled many of these. There are still a few left for him to complete his work. But the ones that we're most familiar with are the ones associated with Jesus' death and his resurrection. The Bible says that Jesus was our Passover. The Passover was the first one of the spring. Jesus was our Passover sacrifice for us. The second was the Feast of Unleavened Bread where the people of Israel uh, were forbidden to have any leaven in their homes and that signified examining your heart and making things right with God. The third one was the first fruits and that corresponds to Jesus' resurrection. The Bible says Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. And then the fourth one, the last of the spring festivals, was the Feast of Pentecost. And of course, we know from Acts chapter 2 that that was when the Holy Ghost was poured out upon all flesh. The 120 in the upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit, and thousands of people got saved as a result of that experience or that event. But then the fall festivals, there are three of them, and they have not been fulfilled yet. I'll explain why as we go along. But Jesus still has a work to do concerning these three uh, fall feasts. The first one was the Feast of Trumpets. And that's the one we want to talk about mostly this morning. And we'll be reading some scripture about that. The second, 10 days later, the, the, the Feast of Trumpets ushers in the Jewish New Year. The second is 10 days later, and it's the Day of Atonement. And then the, the last of the seven was the Feast of Tabernacles where God indwells his people and dwells with them. I want to talk to you mostly, particularly, about the Feast of Trumpets. And to do that, we want to read some uh, origins and some scriptures that tell us uh, what it is and what the significance is. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 1, it says, In the third month when the children of Israel were gone out forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of, Israel, uh, house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you now unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall, be you, then shall you be a particular treasure unto me and above all people. 
for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which the, thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people under Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Whosoever touches the mount shall surely be put to death. And there shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. Keep that in mind. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. And Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said unto them, Be ye ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. And it shall come to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceedingly loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. This is not Israel blowing the trumpet. This is the trumpet that they hear that's coming from the cloud. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. And when the voice of the trumpet sounded long, again, this is something God's doing, not them, and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake, and God answered him by a voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mount, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount, and Moses went up. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go down, charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Numbers chapter 29, verse 1. And in the seventh month, seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work. It is a day of blowing the trumpets unto you. Now this is where God commands Israel to blow the trumpet. And you shall offer a burnt offering for a sweet savor unto the Lord, one young bullock, one ram, and seven lambs of the first year without blemish. And their meat offering shall be of flour mingled with oil, three-tenth deals for a bullock, and two-tenth deals for a ram, and one-tenth deal for one lamb throughout the seven lambs, and one kid for the goats of sin offering to make an atonement for you. Besides the burnt offerings, of the month and his meat offering and the daily burnt offering and his meat offering and their drink offerings according unto the manner for a sweet savor, a sacrifice made by fire unto the Lord. Now folks, you may remember that during Paul's ministry as he traveled from place to place and would write letters back to the churches to encourage them after he had left he would remind them of things that he had taught and the things that he shared with them, the instructions that he gave with to them. And there were questions that would arise because of the interfering and the meddling of the Jews, particularly the priesthood, among the churches to keep the laws of Moses. Apparently, I'm not sure this is a completely accurate way to describe it, but hopefully you'll get the gist of what I'm saying. It seems that there were Jewish leaders that uh, expected to impose the law of Moses upon the Gentiles who had nothing to do with the law of Moses ever, but they were treating them as proselytes. 
not proselytes in the sense of Christians or Christendom, but proselytes to the law of Moses. And they were disturbing and tearing up and uprooting the good doctrine that Paul had preached among them to establish the churches in the first place. You may remember, for example, Galatians chapter 3, where Paul talks about how they were foolish to listen to Jews that came from Jerusalem after Paul had established the churches and, and left that area. They came in to disrupt the normal church service or church worship by imposing the law of Moses. And it was a, a, a real dividing line and a specific issue. There were the, the Jews would come and tell the Gentiles that they couldn't eat meat offered to idols. They told them that they had to keep the feasts of Israel, the seven feasts throughout the year. And they told them basically that Jesus wasn't enough to affect their salvation. They still had to keep the law of Moses. Well, this created a real problem with Paul and in the, the book of Acts, chapter 15, it talks about how they all got together at the council of Jerusalem. And Paul showed forth all the things that the Lord had done through him in these foreign places and foreign cities. And so James, who was the pastor of the church at that time, James, the half-brother of Jesus, not the brother of John, but it tells us that James decided to issue a decree that the law of Moses was not required for the church, for the Christians, to keep in any form whatsoever except for a few things that they should abstain from drinking blood and fornication and so forth. Kind of a common sense approach to separate Christianity from Judaism. And so Paul finds this an issue with most of the, the cities and places that he goes. Or it becomes an issue after he leaves as, what, as the way it happened in most cases. In Joel chapter 2, it talks more about the Feast of Trumpets. Verse 1, it says, Blow you the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for it is the day of, for the, day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as morning as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. And as I said, because it was something that became a part of the New Testament history and the operation of the church, Paul talked about some things relative to the trumpets sounding. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, it says, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, now, this word trump is the same word that's translated trumpets in other places. The word literally means reverberation. And so it could be just a, a voice that reverberates, the voice of God that would reverberate. But we see from the Old Testament example and principles that it included the blowing of the trumpet for long periods of time. So Paul incorporates this as the Holy Spirit instructs him in the things that pertain to the coming of the Lord for the church, the rapture of the church. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump or trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when the corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and the mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, it says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump or trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Folks, the Feast of Trumpets is related to and connected to Jesus coming back to the earth for the church. In fact, uh, I'd like to read to you from Revelation chapter 4. You may remember the revelation that was given to John. It tells us beginning in chapter 1 that he heard a voice behind him when he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he turned around and he saw the seven candlesticks which represented the seven churches of Asia. And he was given instruction, information and instructions to give to these different churches, the seven churches. And he does, and he gives us a, a record of that in the first three chapters. But now in chapter four, things change. He has the vision of the things that would have at the end, happen at the end. And that comes about in verse one. It says, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. Did you notice in the first scripture we read in Exodus chapter 19, the trumpet blowing long was a call for Moses to come up to God. The people were forbidden to stay away from the mountain, don't touch it, which really wasn't an issue for them because they were so afraid when they saw it, they didn't want anything to do with it. You remember they very shortly thereafter conclude that nobody could survive the thunders and the lightnings and the sounds, the rumblings and the earthquakes and all the things that are taking place while Moses is up on top of the mountain, Mount Sinai. But it was a call to come up. Then in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians, Paul identifies the coming up or the being caught up from the earth into heaven to meet Jesus in the air with the sound of the trumpet. Here in Revelation chapter 4, John tells us that he was caught up into heaven by the sound of a trumpet. John literally was raptured to be able to see and get the revelation, what we know of as the revelation of Jesus concerning the end times. Now the feast, of, or the feast or the festival of trumpets is a little bit different than any and all the rest of the feasts of Israel in this way. The feast of trumpets starts with the appearing of the new moon. Now, folks, there are some things that I've shared with you before about the end times and Jesus' instruction to the disciples about the end time event that I've always had a problem with. And the problem that I've had with it 
is that you may remember in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21, the disciples showed Jesus the temple, Herod's temple. It wasn't built in consecration or dedication to the Lord. It was built for Herod to make a name for himself so he could rule over the people of Israel without dispute or trouble. And so when the disciples point out the temple to Jesus, saying, look how beautiful this is, Jesus tells them that there is not one stone that will be left upon another. We know that was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was besieged by the Romans and the temple was dismantled. And the reason for that is because Herod had used as one of the ingredients for the mortar between the bricks to hold the bricks together. And when I say bricks, I don't mean small little bricks. I mean 50 and 100 fountains. 100 ton weight stones and so there was gold dust used for the mortar in between these giant stones and so the Romans took everything apart took the temple apart piece by piece to be able to get to those gold flecks or gold powder whatever it was whatever form it was when when it was being used so Jesus is then approached by his disciples after he tells them about the, what the coming event for the temple. His disciples then come to him and ask him, they said something like, tell us when shall these things happen and what shall be the sign of your coming? And Jesus begins to tell them openly and freely about all the things that are going to happen. He begins telling them about deception. He said, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ. Again, I don't think many truly born-again Christians, which is the only way you can be a Christian, but not too many believers are going to throw in the towel on Jesus for somebody else who says they are sin of God. So the deception he's talking about is different than what we might attached to it or imagine it to be. He tells about wars. He tells about ethnic battles, about countries fighting one another and so forth, famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. And he begins telling them things, much information, probably more information than they could contain or receive But he talks about all these things that would happen until he gets to verse 36, I believe it is. Matthew 24, verse 36. He says something to this effect. But of the day or the hour that these things will occur, no man knows. Not even the angels in heaven, only our Father. It's in his knowledge and it's in his care. Now here's the part that bothered me. Why would Jesus answer their question about signs of the end and then come to the buzzkill scripture that says, but nobody can know when it's going to be? If nobody's going to know when it's going to be, why is he telling them? Why is he telling them about the wars and the rumors of wars that will occur? Why does he tell them about race riots? Ethnic divisions and conflicts. Why does he tell them about the earthquakes and the pestilences and the famines and so forth? Why does he talk about Jerusalem being surrounded? Why does he talk about any of those things when their question was, tell us what the signs of your coming are going to be and when are you coming back? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he would give them the information that he did and then say, but you can't know when. Only God knows that. And there might be an explanation for why he said what he did about the day and the hour no man knows. And it could be tied up in our understanding of the Feast of Trumpets. The new year starts at the appearing of the new moon. 
Now the new moon doesn't always follow the calendar. In fact, there were times in Israel's history when the new moon appearing delayed for several days because of weather, adverse weather conditions and so forth. The moon was there, but they couldn't see it. And it didn't count until it appeared. And so there were people, three people that were designated by the high priest to be on the look, lookout, to be on watch concerning the new moon appearing. And it had to be seen by all three and confirmed by this three-man panel that was solicited specifically by the high priest to know when the ritual and the feast would start. So when Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour, he certainly is saying nobody knows ahead of time what will be as far as God's timetable is concerned. But he's not saying we can't know when. Now when Jesus was here on the earth, he knew the timetable and he focused on the timetable to make sure he was in the right place at the right time, the right time being the Passover. Jesus didn't have any trouble telling the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to be taken captive, to be beaten, and then to be crucified. That wasn't a, a, a secret of God. The Bible is full of Old Testament prophecies, 470 of them, I think, to be precise, that Jesus fulfilled as a part of his earthly ministry and his death on the cross. God's not hiding that. Why would God be hiding when Jesus is coming back? What would be the effect or the result of Jesus keeping secret this time that he returns to the earth. I would imagine that you think a little bit like me in this respect. There are people who are not completely and totally sold out to God that would probably live tainted by the world until they get close to the time when they know Jesus is coming back and then they get their life right just right at the end. Live carnally until you know Jesus is coming back for the church. Well, in that sense, the Bible tells us to know the times and the seasons. It tells us to recognize the time that we live in. So I don't think that answer would be sufficient to explain why the day and the hour cannot be known. As I said, there were times throughout Jewish history, not many times, but some, enough to consider it uh, significant, where the new moon couldn't be seen because of adverse weather conditions. And so the Jewish New Year didn't start until those adverse weather conditions had come to an end and the new moon could be seen. The Jews, Orthodox Jews, recognized that the Feast of Trumpets establishes the appearance of the Savior or the Messiah. For them, it would be the first coming to the earth by the Messiah. But to the Christian who recognizes that Jesus came 
and bore the sins of the earth and was crucified and raised from the dead, they recognized that was his first coming, his first appearance. And so the Feast of Trumpets regarding the Messiah, the appearance of the Messiah would be the second coming for the church. Now, folks, if we are as close as everything indicates we are, we would have to recognize that the Antichrist, who cannot be revealed until the church is taken away in the rapture, but the Antichrist is most probably alive and in operation on the earth today. Would you allow me to speculate a little bit? There's a gentleman, an evil gentleman, who is already at work in the earth today. He's the president of France. There are some things that just recently, I've been prompted and led by the Holy Ghost, I believe, to read up on, to study, and to identify research. Things that should have been common knowledge to us. But our press, our media, is so narcissistic that apparently they think the only thing that counts in the world that's going on today is happening here. And I think that has to do with the time that we live in as well. Because in just a few decades prior to the time we live in, the things that have happened openly and freely for anybody and everybody to, to see and hear would have been presented to the American people to determine for themselves what meaning there is and what significance there is to those things that are happening. But one of the things the devil wants to do and one of his greatest works here in the earth is to separate us, to focus on ourselves because the more we focus on ourselves, the more we miss out on what's happening in other parts of the world. You remember that Paul wrote, and one of the things that he said about the condition of the people of the earth in the last days would be selfishness. Folks, America has made selfishness an art. But there's a man who was elected president of this nation of France in May of 2018 that has, because of the relationship between France and the European Union, has called for the revival of the Roman Empire, which is a part of end-time prophecy concerning the Antichrist. And he has proposed himself to be the ruler of that body, the European Union. And he has promised that if they make him the leader, put him in charge, he will rule like the Roman god Jupiter. And as a result, Jupiter has become one of his names, his nicknames in Europe. Other names that are, recited, or that are given to him is Jesus Macron, Europe's savior, or the sun king, reborn. Here's the meaning of his full name. His full name is Emmanuel Jean-Michel Frederick Macron. 
The name Emmanuel means God with us. The name John means gift from God. The name Michael or Michelle is who is like God. The name Frederick means peaceful ruler. The name Macron means a written or printed mark. Now we know from the Revelation, book of Revelation, that one of the outstanding characteristics of the Antichrist is the mark of the beast. And Revelation tells us that the mark of the beast is the name of the Antichrist. So Emmanuel, God with us, John, gift from God, Michael, who is like God, Frederick, Prince of Peace, and Macron, a written or printed mark, is the name that was given to this guy. Now, folks, Macron's parents are openly an avowed atheist. So who in the world would think to name their son all these things and all these God-connected meanings when they themselves don't believe in the Bible or in the existence of God? The feast or the festival of trumpets is scheduled for September 25th. I say scheduled because it could be delayed by adverse weather conditions just like it has been on, I hate to say many, but some occasions anyway. And there are people that are starting to claim that if the rapture doesn't take place on September 25th in the Festival of Trumpets, that God is missing a, 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 a terrific opportunity. There are others that are saying the same thing about President Macron. If he's not the Antichrist, then God misses a good opportunity to name him. Folks, we have a tremendous opportunity presented to us because of the time that we live in. Let's imagine for a moment September 25th is the rapture. Is there going to be anything that you would wish you had done here on the earth? I don't think anybody's going to be kicking themselves because they didn't buy that new car. Or upset with themselves because they didn't purchase something or do some activity here on the earth. But I wonder, how long will it take before we come to the place where we regret not witnessing to our family members or reaching out to others who didn't make it. In football, professional football, they have a two-minute drill. For the last two minutes of the game, because of the near to the end, the near to the finish of the game. Football teams, in some, to some degree, change their identity. Because of the shortness of the time for them to score or to win the game. But what about a two minute drill for the church? There's a great work to be done. But there's a promise given to us by God himself. The 
creator of the universe. That promise is that there will be a move of the Holy Ghost that will sweep multitudes into the kingdom of God. Or as James said, shall bring about the precious fruit of the earth. Folks, it's almost incomprehensible to me that the rapture could occur in just a matter of months. But why couldn't it? There's nothing yet to be fulfilled in Scripture. There's no prophecy that's outstanding. In fact, the only thing that's left to be done according to Scripture is the move of the Holy Spirit to bring about the precious fruit of the earth. But we have to be careful about how we speak of that because the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in the earth today is already being done far outstrips anything that we see happening in the book of Acts. I think we all have a tendency to think that we shall see certain things or experience certain things in our midst, right in our own backyard, and that that will be the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But is that a legitimate point of view? Jesus could appear at this very moment and the work of the Holy Spirit be justified by the things that are happening in the earth. There are some things that I've become acquainted with over the year and helped and aided by Hilton Sutton. You remember him? You remember Dr. Sutton? We had him a numerous times here in the church, probably five or six different times. And we'd have him teach on Revelation. And I may be a little bit biased because of my personal relationship with him. But I, without a doubt, believe he was the best teacher of Revelation that there was. He's been in heaven for quite a while now. But one of the things that he was looking forward to, and I think he died before it took place, was the launching of the Hubble telescope. The Hubble telescope was presented and the claims of the builders and the scientists behind it was that we would be able to look back in time in the universe and see anything and everything, even including perhaps the creation of the universe itself. Well, it was launched, but somehow or another, somebody had failed to polish the mirror. The mirror. And that was a big blow up and they had to send people out in space to repair it and they were successful in what they did and so the Hubble Space Telescope started sending back images of the universe and they were fascinating they didn't have much detail to them but they showed us galaxies and solar systems that we didn't know before and showed us a little bit at least how big the universe was or is. This year, I think it's this year, I've just started seeing some of the results of them. But there's another space telescope that was sent out in space, the James Webb Telescope. 
And to see the pictures that the Hubble telescope sent us compared with the new ones from the Webb te telescope, I don't have any relation to the founder of this thing, but I sure appreciate that he's got my last name. Because the pictures that are being sent back are just mind-boggling. They've discovered from these research data from these telescopes that the universe is expanding, and they knew that already, but the universe is expanding faster than the speed of light. Now, how is anything faster than the speed of light? Yet that's what they found. And remember, God said that he created the universe, meaning stars and, and planets and so forth, to be lights under the earth, to show forth signs and wonders and to be lights to the earth. About the only thing that I've got on my Facebook feed is these telescope pictures. And to look at those things, as I often do, and examine the beauty of the things, the universe, it helps give me a bigger picture of God. We're concerned about our problems here on the earth. And I don't mean to discount any troubles or adversities or things like that that you're going through. We all know how concerning it is for us when things aren't going right here on the earth. But folks, in the grand scheme of things, our problems really aren't very big. But of everything that God is revealing, of everything that these telescope pictures show us, God is still interested in one and only one thing, and that's mankind. When Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, he is exactly correct as we would know him to be. But it doesn't mean that we can't know the seasons that we're in. What's going to happen when the church is raptured? Well, when John was caught up into heaven, he saw the crystal sea standing before the throne of God. As Dr. Sutton used to say, crystal is the only element in the earth that can't hide a flaw. You can hide a flaw in a diamond by the way that it's cut. But crystal has a magnifying effect of anything and everything about itself. And so if there's a flaw, crystal can't hide it. So we assume that that great sea of crystal is the church who have been caught up to heaven in John's vision, just as he was. And the first thing that he sees when Jesus is identified as worthy to open the seals, the first thing he sees is war. The second thing he sees is the Antichrist. Now, Ezekiel 38 and 39, it tells us about the end time war where Russia and Iran and mostly Islam, Islamic nations joined together to attack Israel 
from the north through the mountains of Syria. And Jesus destroys them in one day. The book of Revelation does not contain any reference whatsoever to Islam or any other religion up until the point in time where the Antichrist makes himself to be his God, claims to be God. So the Bible says that of these nations that joined together with Russia and Iran, only the seventh part is left. Now that's not talking about the army. It's talking about the through the fire and hail, hailstones mingled with fire that fall on those countries. It tells us that only a seventh part is left. That's something like 16 or 17 percent. So just as the Passover destroyed the firstborn of every house of the Egyptians, there will be much of the world that's left, countries in the world, I mean, that are left without any leadership whatsoever. It'll be a perfect time for the Antichrist to rise up and take power. What will Israel see in the first day of the tribulation? They will see their complete and total deliverance and victory over insurmountable odds and numbers of troops and so forth. Now we know that's on the first day of the tribulation because we know the tribulation lasts for seven years and it tells us, Revelation tells us that the burning of the machines, tanks, other weapons of warfare will continue for seven years. So it has to be at the first day. And as a result of that tremendous failure or tremendous deliverance by God of his people, they look up and see their Savior, Jesus Christ. So the appearance of the new moon for Israel is very much the appearance of the Savior. Not for the church. The church is taken and protected from the wrath of God that's poured out on the, on the earth. Then the Bible tells us that the temple will be rebuilt. There won't be any resistance to Israel rebuilding the temple because those that would withstand it today are caught with those armies that are destroyed by God. I want you to consider for a moment the attitude of God toward Jesus coming back for the church. We know that it's a joyous time for us who will be caught up together with those that were dead. The dead in Christ shall rise first, the Bible says. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air. It'll be more than joy unspeakable and full of glory. It'll be unlike any joy we've ever experienced here on this earth. And knowing that God's original purpose 
and his great desire is to indwell his people to live inside of us and to live among us. It shall be a time of great joy for God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But then just 24 hours later, God has the opportunity and through his action completes the work that shows once and for all without a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of Israel. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists are called and separated to proclaim Jesus as Lord. But for the first time, probably since God rescued them out of Egypt, brought them out of Egyptian bondage, God will have the opportunity to draw his own, the precious seed of Abraham, into his family. Folks, the joy and the reverence and the might and the power of the creator of the universe will be on display in such a way that no one can argue against it. Doesn't mean everybody will get saved, but it means a lot of them will. Paul wrote to the church about the Lord's Supper. And he encourages the church to recognize the symbolism that's behind it. The juice represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us to affect our righteousness. And the bread is identified as symbolizing his body that was broken for us so that we can walk in divine health here on this earth. And he encouraged the church to have the proper attitude toward the juice and the bread And he said that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. We do show the Lord's death and his great provision until he comes. Gentlemen, would you come forward, please? We'll wait upon the people.
As we said before, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we take this bread and we give you thanks for it because it represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us the stripes that he took upon himself, the stripes that he took upon his back, caused his blood to flow specifically for our physical health. So Father, we receive this bread. We receive the healing power of God to restore us every whit and completely. Let's receive the bread. Father, we take this cup, which represents the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. The blood of Jesus that makes us righteous and makes us worthy of all of your blessings, makes us worthy to stand in your presence. We thank you, Father, that we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And because of that righteousness, we are each and every one delivered completely and totally from the work of the evil one. Thank you, Father, for this cup. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's all stand. Let's just spend a moment or two worshiping God and thanking Him for His goodness. We worship You, Father. We magnify You. We exalt You. We thank You for Your faithfulness. You've always been faithful, Father. You've never let us down. Have your way in, these, in this church in the last days. Move according to your plan and your purpose. We yield ourselves to you, Lord. We yield ourselves to the leading of the Holy Ghost. We magnify you, dear Father. Jesus is the head of the church. You have given us your name so that the gates of hell should not prevail against us. Direct us, Holy Spirit, by the leading and the prompting of the head of the church, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We yield ourselves to you, Lord. Use us as you see fit. In Jesus' name, everybody that agrees with that, say amen. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a great day.